Today, I have a great talk with Braxton Baker, all about generalization and really embedding communication across a learner's day. Braxton is a fellow unicorn. He is a speech-language pathologist and a board-certified behavior analyst and coach. With his adopted puppy turned therapy dog, Molly, he's the owner of Innovative Therapy Solutions, LLC. And he really specializes in guiding parents and professionals to take a holistic, big-picture approach to coordinating the home, school, and outside services to achieve maximal continuous growth for the individual he works with. I knew that I was going to be fast friends with Braxton. We never really met until this episode, but gosh, I had a great time talking with him. We really think similarly about that holistic view of the child, the individual, and really the team so that communication is embedded across a student's day. And he does this by focusing on the five Ps, creating processes to everyday interactions and people, giving them more purpose, creating more possibilities, making greater overall progress, and giving more peace for all involved. Wow, that is profound. I love that, Braxton. You guys are really going to enjoy this interview, and I share some little tidbits that you haven't heard before. So make sure that you listen to the end, and let's cue that music. You're listening to Autism Outreach Podcast, a podcast full of ready-to-use strategies to help those with autism strengthen their communication skills. Here's your host, Rose Griffin of ABA Speech, a speech therapist and board-certified behavior analyst who shares tips you can use in your next therapy session. Thanks for joining us on episode 20 of the Autism Outreach Podcast. My name is Rose Griffin, and I am here to help you learn strategies you can use in your therapy sessions tomorrow to help your students. Today, we have Braxton Baker with us. Thanks for joining us, Braxton. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. It's so nice to have you on. I feel like I know you, even though I don't. We just virtually (laughs) met, but we do have a bond because you are also an SLP and BCBA. So I knew we were going to be fast friends. Can you tell us a little bit about you? and your journey? So I got my master's as a speech pathologist. um, And I was actually, how I ended up becoming a BCBA was I moved back to Kansas City, my my home state, uh, to be in a counseling psychology program. That was my plan is I want to be a psychologist and that will allow me to do these diagnoses for these kids that I'm working with so much. That was my plan. Life happens. And somehow I ended up finding out more about a BCBA, that, that certification I could get and what it does. And that just took me by storm and everything I learned about it took me away. And I've started doing that and got my certification a couple of years later. Oddly enough, turns out I had actually worked with a bunch of people from UNT in a previous speech path role that they were their ABA program. I just, it was ABA. And I just, at that time, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't really want to know anything about it. And here I am three years later, five years later, and actually my boss at that time said, remember that time I told you, you need to get your master's in ABA, like you'd be really good at this. I was like, yes, you were right. I apologize. I had no idea that what it could, what doors it could open for me. And, and I'm just amazed at what ABA has allowed me to do across the board and just anything I can apply it to, which I've always, I challenge my BCBAs uh, that I talk to to say, ABA is something that applies to all areas of life. And if you can't ABA it, explain that in ABA, then you're not actually ABAing. That's mm-hmm. the whole thing is, is it, cause it's not a, it's not a therapy technique. Right. It is a description about the way the world works. 
Absolutely. I love that's that. Actually, I took I took my course sequence at UNT. That's so funny. I lived in Austin, Texas. After we got married, we moved down to Austin, Texas. And gosh, I had the coolest job down there. It was called Autism Facilitator and Support Specialist. But it was kind of like what I do at ABA Speech, where I would go once a month to the, uh-huh. the meetings for speech therapists. And I would talk about applied behavior analysis. And then I would go out to the campuses and I'd visit speech therapists, help them do the VB map and help them work on manding and you know work with early learners. Gosh, I love that so much. But yeah, I took all my courses down there. Actually, my supervisor was Kelly Wood Rich. I don't know if you know her. She owns um, Central Texas Autism Center. So love, love, love that. That is so funny. But I, I feel the same way about applied behavior analysis. A lot of people will ask me, well, how do you do this? Or how do you you know differentiate speech therapy from being a BCBA? And I'm like, I don't know, man. This is just the way my brain works. And I've been doing it so long. So I've been a speech therapist almost 20 years and a BCBA almost 10 of those years. So this is just kind of how Rose operates across all levels. But I do that at home too. I have three kids and I just, I'm always kind of straight, I'm very nerdy. I'm sure you can relate to these kind of things, but I'm always kind of like analyzing my plans, you know, my flows in my house and my work and my business and trying to be more efficient and all those things. And I think you're right. It's just ABA is everywhere. It's kind of how you're approaching life. So I, I, I love that um, dynamic. Very, very cool. So are you working now as a speech therapist and a BCBA or what does your current work look like now? Yes, so basically the answer is yes, I do both. I have some people that really come to me more because of the speech therapy aspect, at least that's what they are. They believe they're there for. Other people come to me because of behaviors and behavioral concerns, that's what they believe they're there for. Again, they they coexist. I have some families of neurotypical of kids and helping them with behavioral strategies because of my ABA background, but a lot of it also includes, well, I have a lot of developmental knowledge about what should be expected of pragmatic and social interactions and Mm -hmm. language skills or what skills are missing and that sort of thing, coaching those families on, well, this is a hole that we have or what something where we're not lining up. And so in order to support, you know, the the behavior side of it, usually because it comes from a skill deficit. So while they're here for me for behavior, we're also teaching some skills, which I know about because of my speech and language background. Same thing with speech and language, anything that I do about the skills I've identified as a speech pathologist that let me know these are the things you need to work on. I'm using quote unquote ABA techniques mm-hmm. is what they'll, you know, that's what we'll say uh, to, to address those and methods. And again, you know, what I say is that I'm not, again, ABA isn't a set of techniques. ABA is describing things that people were already doing. We did, never didn't get, didn't get invented by right. Skinner. He just goes, oh, this is what learning looks like. Let me give those little details about learning names. Right. It was yeah. never invented like some of the other psycho- psychological methods are saying, oh, this is a thing that we created. Mm-hmm. No, we didn't create this as a therapy because it's not therapy. That's why it's a science because he just described it was already happening. Yeah. So all I do is use, I use ABA to help me describe what I was already doing as a speech therapist. It didn't right. change. I was a great speech therapist, not to brag, but I was good. I was very effective. That's why I was able to be successful. Right. What ABA allowed me to do was describe what I was already doing. And because I now have the vocabulary to do so, I can now tell others what that is. And I can give them a way of thinking about it. And this is it's like any, like within psychotherapy, a lot of going to psychotherapy is giving vocabulary to what you're feeling, what you're doing, the approaches that are working. It's no different. Now I have vocabulary to talk about these good teaching, good therapy methods that I'm already implementing. 
Right. And then so that allows me to the other idea that, you know, if you don't have words for something, you can't manipulate something. You can't think about something unless you have a word for it. They have a, a, a symbolic structure. So while we talk about learning and teaching and therapy methods, if I don't have words for all those little components and pieces, I can't think about them completely and effectively and, and truly manipulate the dependent and independent variables. But ABA gives me the vocabulary to symbolically represent those things I was already doing. So right. now I can. I can break it apart. I can. That's where the science comes in the analysis of it. Right. And, and that's that's where ABA has just been so powerful. Yeah, I love that. And I, I feel your passion. It's really great. I mean, I know when I first learning started learning about using applied behavior analysis, I was working in a specialized program for students who had very intense, unsafe behavioral barriers. And I remember learning about applied behavior analysis and how we were able to help students who were just so advanced in their age and did not have any way to communicate besides using maladaptive behavior to kind of orient their environment. It just broke my heart. But to be able to reach students like that, that was like really my aha moment to say like, wow, this is really powerful. This is amazing. And I used to say, Braxton, when I was in that position, I was in that position for three years. And I remember learning about ABA for the first time and thinking, oh my gosh, I want to go places and I want to tell people all about it because I actually just made a TikTok. I'm on TikTok. I talk about social media a lot on here, but that's kind of my fun way to to disseminate information. I definitely do a lot of talks. My company's an Asher provider, but I do like to disseminate in lots of different ways. But I know you've seen the power of using the science to help people across the board. I love that idea about coaching. And that's really kind of what we're going to get into talking about today. But it's really great. And I think it's great that you're doing such great uh, work in the field. So... Super excited. I loved how you're talking about coaching, working with families. And that's really one of the reasons I wanted to have you on today. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about the importance of generalization, which is so very, very important. I always like that idea that we want to plan for generalization. We don't want to pray that that happens. I'm pretty sure that's in the Cooper book. And how to improve and incorporate natural environment teaching. So can you just start off by telling us, you know, what do those terms mean? Like, what is generalization? Like, what does natural environment teaching? Because we have a mix of people listening that are professionals but we also have some parents that are tuning in today too. Absolutely. So let's start with you know generalization. The idea behind generalization is that, I'm going to give you a couple different uh, ways to look at it. One is that the skill that you learned in a very structured way, it was specifically taught to you, does get generalized to other settings, quote unquote, the natural environment, you know, everywhere else, any other time that you might need that skill, are you able to use that skill or demonstrate that skill outside of the the one time that you were taught it? And I think that's, I want to differentiate that the time I was taught it or the time I learned it and generalizing to everything else versus the time I went to a program that structured and taught me that. Because the truth is we, we tend to think of it as, oh, well, they did the ABA program or this, this speech room, whatever they taught they learned that skill and then they generalized it out or did they generalize it out? Well, that's not actually, that's true, but it also goes to that one time I was with my dad and my dad pointed out that thing and said that that was a Phillips head. And I go, oh, that's a Phillips head. Did I know that that was a Phillips head screwdriver the rest of my life and use it in other places? That's generalization also. And so when people get to be a little iffy around it, like, oh, well, did we do it? Did we not do it? It should be the expectation. That is life. That is good learning. And I think that's my, I know I'm going to probably say this multiple times is that that's the expectation is that if generalization doesn't occur, then did you ever really learn it? Mm. Right. It's oh, like if like a tree that. fall in the forest, you didn't hear it. Did it ever really happen? And no one's around to see it did happen. Truth is, if you if a, if you learned a skill and it generalization did not occur, did you actually learn it? Because you didn't. 
a skill that you have is a skill that you can employ at your will, essentially. When I think that's what gets to, you know, I talk a lot about, because I am a school-based clinician three days a week, so I talk a lot about IEP development. And I remember working with students who just had more complex needs. And, you know, I would work with students who maybe we were going to work on labeling functional preferred items or actions, and they might learn six new ones a year. And I would tell people in trainings, like, that's a lot of pressure. Like, I want to make sure that this skill is really functional because it's not, you know, what happens in the therapy room stays in the therapy room. I actually tend to work with older students. So I really try to like see no one in my therapy room because that's not really where communication happens. It may be for students who maybe have some something different like stuttering or something that has a counseling component, but we really need to be embedding this communication kind of in functional routine. So I really love that idea. And that that really makes you kind of analyze your own practice. Like, what are we doing here? Why is this important? I remember working as a second year, I was a second year speech therapist at this outside placement and we would have special education directors coming in and they were paying a lot of money to have the child educated in this non-public program. And they really were asking me some really hard questions about my speech therapy goals. But I'll tell you what, it really gave me, it was a learning curve. I was feeling very timid and overwhelmed being so young and being such a kind of contentious situation. But I think it made me such a better therapist because I know when I set this goal, what the idea is. I know how we're embedding it across environments. So we're working on generalization and I know what the scope and sequence of. I know sometimes we might be sitting in an IEP thinking, why did I write that goal? Or after the IEP gets signed off on, you think to yourself, how am I going to take data on that goal? You know, those are things that, you know, 20 years into the field, I'm feeling pretty good at the IEP table. But my younger self, if you're listening and you're newer to the field, you really do need to analyze these things like, why is this important? What is this working towards? How is this going to help this student become a more functional, more independent communicator? So I love, I love that point about generalization. It's like, did you ever learn it? if you're not really utilizing it in the natural environment. So that's a great point. Absolutely. And you know, kind of to your point earlier about whenever we're looking at, at the skill and trying to make sure it does get generalized, where are your priorities, right? What, how do you prioritize these things? And if you're not starting with the idea, well, this is what it would look like in the natural environment in your everyday life, which one, you know, Cooper and Heron, the, the white book does a great job of giving you a, some worksheets through prioritizing and selecting and making sure they're socially significant. And I, I've got a few additions that I like to add to them, but it's definitely a great starting point to make sure you're thinking about these things as the end result. You may not have that as your goal per se, but that should be what your end result is. Again, I'm thinking not as your goal as your IEP goal, but you should have that as your end result. And that's what you should be starting towards is getting to that. Because if that's not what you're looking at, if that's not what your expectation is, is generalization, then you, again, you didn't do anything really. Right. And I think sometimes like, especially as a school-based therapist, sometimes it's just hard hard because you may have so many different people at the IEP table who have so many different opinions about what is most important for a student where, you know, I may think of something like very holistically like, oh, I want the student to be able to, you know, talk to our school administrative assistant and ask for this. And it's very functional. You know, parents may have other ideas about something that's important to them. The teachers may weigh in on something that's important for them. So it is hard to have like that compromise, but I think it's good to advocate for those types of things. Like, how is the student really going to use this skill? How is this really important for the whole child or the whole individual? So I think those are really good points to think about. And I know sometimes people probably just are not analyzing. I mean, you like to analyze me too, right? Being SLP, BCBAs, but 
uh, sometimes I think people are just not analyzing it to that point to really think to themselves after I create this document, when I'm working with a student, why are we doing what we're doing in essence? You're kind of asking yourself that, right? Yes. And let, I mean, and let's be honest, where is the quality coaching on how to do that? Right. I mean, where is the thing that helps someone who isn't a behavior analyst, not saying behavioral analysts do it perfectly, but who isn't, doesn't have a whole license and, and, and certification in analyzing behavior to try to make sure we're doing this right? Where is the simplified, but yet highly effective plan for how to to, to do that so you can feel confident in it. Because I feel like that's what everyone wants to do. That's right. what everyone, that's what we're being told to do in, I do work in schools also. I work mm-hmm. in private practice. I work in schools in a lot of settings. That's what we're told to do and pressured to do. But where is the tools to do that? And I will tell you that I myself am guilty of, I'm trying, I'm working on it. I'm getting there to do with my presentations and my talks, but I don't, I don't have that yet. I hope I do one day. I hope someone does. If somebody else has it, please tell me so I don't reinvent the wheel and I can just preach it to the mountaintops. But where is that for the parent when they're anal- when they're looking at their own kids' behavior at home or when they're looking at what the school doing? How do I feel confident that the school is doing what I, I want them to be as opposed to just trusting or the teacher who is new or the teacher who's seasoned or the therapist who's seasoned or new? It just isn't necessarily there and it's not accessible. And I would say that as a downfall to ABA, which I know is a criticism that's been heard a lot, is it, how accessible is it? Because I think ABA has that tool set yeah. um, that we can offer, but again, making it accessible and palatable because one thing that popped in my head that I, I was, it was like, oh, should I say this or not, is looking at, we also have to look at the skill set of the people who, in that moment mm-hmm. and and without judgment because right. I feel so much... Uh, hesitation and and defensiveness from people because we expect everyone to do X, Y, or Z, right? At a certain level. Well, the truth is, if you're not there because you're brand new or because you've just never been in this situation before or whatever, if we come at it going, you should have, or right. why aren't you? That's never going to help anybody. I've never seen an argument won by telling somebody they should have done something harder than they're saying, I tried. Yeah. And I, you know, and too, coming from a, you know, I know a lot of speech therapists tend to feel defensive when BCBAs kind of come onto the scene because usually if an outside consultant is coming in, it's because things are going not well. Things are going very badly. And so there are things that need to be done. And sometimes it's just a hard situation to to be able to learn, to be able to collaborate. I mean, gosh, that's pretty much why I started ABA Speech, just to kind of build a bridge between speech therapists and BCBAs. Besides all the words that we say that are different, you know, man, tact, MLU, like all this jargon type stuff, it's just sometimes philosophically hard for us to agree on things. I love this one ethics article I use. I teach this class in ethics and it says like, you know, one of the things we shouldn't say in a meeting is, well, where's your evidence for that? Or what's the, what's your research behind that? Because that, that, I love this line, it erodes the professional relationship. I think it's Dr. Broadhead who wrote this article. He's a BCBA. But I just like that idea of like, you know, how can we work together in meetings? Now, sometimes, you know, parents, I work with like parent advocates. I know in a public school, like that's kind of a nice support for parents. Sometimes that's kind of embedded. Larger districts may actually have their own advocates within the district. Some of those supports, but I just know, yeah, like what about the young teacher? Where's the, you know, where's the support? You know, it's just kind of hard. I mean, every discipline kind of has their own little 
mentorship. I was actually listening to the Behavioral Observations podcast with Matt Sicori. I love him. And he had somebody on and she's a BCBA and she was just talking about how there's so many new BCBAs and how the field is just exploding. And she actually said, you know, what's really interesting is that speech therapists have this thing called a CFY year, which is just our first year working in the field. And we have some level of mentorship. And it's kind of nice just to have that person to check in with. BCBAs don't exactly have that yet after they're certified, but I don't think it's a bad idea. And maybe it's something that we'll see down the road because being a new professional, is it's hard. It's a lot. It's overwhelming. So I think those are all really good things yeah, to bring up. And I think that's too why it's hard, Braxton, is there is no one size fits all. You know, sometimes if you're going to work on R, there's a lot of different things you can try. I went to a great talk at ASHA, used it with some private clients, dismissed them within a year. It was like the best moment of my life. But for students with more complex needs, there just isn't one size fits all. Even though we're using applied behavior analysis, everything is so individualized. And I think that's why it's harder to disseminate. Do you feel that way too? Yes, I absolutely feel as though it is such a different skill set that... So I'm going to give you two things that I try to do. These are some, maybe things that are going to be helpful for parents or professionals, just in what we're talking about that help me in those moments to, I would say, be empathetic, right? To to have a connection because it, what happens is we, we dehumanize it, the person on the other side of the table or on the other side of the email because you are blank or you said blank. And because of what they said, that is their identity to me now. Right, that they are, they aren't a human because then we wouldn't say that to a human that we we had a, a human connection with or we could empathize in some way. Mm-hmm. So one of the questions I always ask everybody, you know, and professionally or whatever, have a team that's you know got some dissonance to it, is do you think that anyone here would have said or done something intentionally to be harmful, whether mm-hmm. to the kid or to you? Tell me, do you, if the answer is a yes, we have a much bigger problem here. I like that. Yeah. Say that question one more time. That's really, really good because these meetings and just all these things can get really heated. So tell me that again. That was a good question. So I say, do you think that this person or anyone here, whatever, would have intentionally done something to be harmful? Right. And that's the verse out of the gate. Mm -hmm. Answers generally no, right? Otherwise they wouldn't be doing this. Um, Do you think that they are, are trying to prevent progress? Answers usually always no, right? I mean, again, right. if the answer is yes, we have a different issue because no matter right. what I say or do, you're not going to believe me because you think I'm actively trying to do you harm, right? <laughs> right, right. So right. If, if we, so that kind of gives me a, either A, figures out there's a bigger problem or B, usually just kind of levels the playing and say, helps everyone get on the same page. We're all here for the same thing, essentially, right? Right, right. And so what I usually tell everybody is then, again, this is when my coaching my parents about their kids or Sometimes the family dynamic includes, you know, the relationships or other professionals is usually if you believe that this person would do whatever it is that's best, what's the only other reason that they might not do it? Usually because they have a barrier of some sort. There's a skill deficit, a knowledge deficit, a resource deficit. I mean, this is what I talk about for my kids when I'm talking about your kid and what we're doing. Why Mm -hmm. why is it your kid behaving the way you want them to or or what way that would make them successful? Because you know they want to, they would, they could. There's there's some sort of a barrier, a skill deficit, a motivation deficit, a a resource deficit, whatever. Mm -hmm. And we can apply that same thing to the other professionals in the room or at at this table that we're working with. Because I will say over and over again, we're not that different from our kids. We keep right. acting like we are. We act like we're special just because we use bigger words or we have more metacognitive action talking about it. 
but we're not, it's all the same thing. Yeah, that's good. I feel like you've taken some coaching courses. I'm like, (laughs) yeah, because you're not telling people the answer. You're kind of leading people through this process of analyzing. I mean, and that's so important because I mean, when I was coming up with the podcast, because it's so new, you know, I Mm -hmm. wanted to call it outreach because I have a lot of different people on the podcast. I have BCBAs and SLPs and OTs and parents and people with autism because everybody has their own story. Everybody has a seat at the table. Everybody is invested in trying to, you know, help with that dynamic. So those are such great things to talk about and so important to have that coaching, that kind of everybody on the same page when you're working for and working towards generalizing, right? And trying to help our students. So that's Those are such great points. I love that. And the other area that I wanted to cover is natural environment teaching. And so that might be kind of a new term to some people. For some people, they might think, you know, yes, I know that. I know that I do a lot of... I have a company called Supervision Academy, and we specialize in remote supervision for people who are getting their BCBA certification. So I do a lot of coaching about what does that mean and how can we implement that in our sessions. And so can you talk to us a little bit about what that term means? Absolutely. So let's... I'm going to, it's good. I'm going to, again, per usual, I'm never, I don't quite fit in. This is less why I work for myself. Maybe that should have been, should have been part of my story. The reason I have my own business is because I never fit quite fit in. I never, and I like, I know a better way to do this. And so I've gotten to the point where I refuse to do it a different way, yeah. but help those who are still working within those systems. Mm-hmm. Um, so natural environment teaching, you know, it's just, it's a naturalistic intervention is a, is a collective of practices. And that's typically how it's perceived is a collection of practices and including an environmental arrange, environmental arrangements, interaction techniques, and strategies designed to encourage specific target behaviors, right? That's what it were kind looking at. I also want to broaden that in into the idea that it doesn't have to be a set of strategies and techniques that you did in order in this artificial environment to be naturalistic teaching or natural environment teaching. Currently, that's kind of what we think of it as, oh, well, how did I make my therapy room or my little therapy cubby or my whatever look more like the natural environment? So that way it's a natural environment teaching. Well, you could also just teach the natural environment. Right. That's by definition, natural environment teaching. And so I want to make sure that we are differentiating between doing things, these strategies to make a non-natural environment as close to natural as possible versus teaching in the natural environment and teaching people how to do that. Yeah, I think that's a good point because I feel like in the field of applied behavior analysis, at least the way that I think some people think about it and some people train on it this way, really, is that there might be this idea that we're going to do some instruction at the table and people might refer to that as just direct instruction, discrete trial training. These are just generalizations, Mm -hmm. but you might teach some skills in more of a teaching session that way. And then we might do a natural environment teaching session that might not be at the table. It's just in a different location. But what you're really saying, and you know, and I'm excited to hear what you have to say about it because just for me in working some different programs that were non-public programs, and I think I was talking to, do you know Liz Willis? She's a friend yeah. of mine too. Okay, My you goodness, guys are yes. probably on the same page. She has, she thinks a lot, probably like the way that you do. But what I was telling her, her on because I had her on <laughs> on the podcast is that 
sometimes it's hard if you're not the person actually implementing the intervention. It gets a little bit harder when you're training others to implement the intervention because I think it's more open-ended. And it's a little bit harder to, to teach other people how to facilitate that instruction. So I'm excited to hear what you have to say about how maybe you're incorporating it. And then I don't know if you're working in any capacity where you're training others to also provide this type of instruction because it can be a challenge. Yeah. Uh, so absolutely. And I think that's why people aren't doing it because it's a challenge to train. And I mm-hmm. you know, talk about this differentiation between ABA and speech path and how they can be kind of conflictive. And I think Part of it comes from, historically, a lot of, not all, but a lot of ABA does a bottom-up approach of very structured, very specific about exactly how it needs to be happening, and it can Mm -hmm. be broken down very easily, which is farther from naturalistic environments and that sort of thing, whereas speech therapy, even if it's in our speech therapy room, which is our comfortable space that is still in a natural environment, it's still, we try to make it look more naturalistic first and foremost as, Mm -hmm. as, you know, kind of a top-down approach. And so a people, ABA historically is really great at explaining, getting others to, getting texts and other uh, implementers to do those things. Mm-hmm. Whereas a speech therapist historically aren't great at telling people how to do what they do because it's so naturalistic, mm-hmm. right? It's so just uh, in the moment I feel it. Well, the right. truth is whatever you're feeling, again, my belief that ABA is just a description of things you're already doing, which and maybe that's what gives me so much, such confidence to be able to coach people on things and help them because that's what I believe. So I say, oh, show me what you're doing. Tell me what you're feeling. I'll give you words for it. And now all of a sudden, you're able to coach through this natural environment thing. You're able to, again, you talked about how do I write a goal for that? How do I measure that? Mm -hmm. Well, again, if you don't have the words to talk about it, then you're not going, you're not necessarily going to be able to necessarily going to be able to do that. And an ABA historically doesn't come at it from let's start with natural environments. Right. And so we're forced to describe that sort of thing. Also, because we're operating off of such structured programs, a lot of the time, my belief is that we don't have the opportunity to go off of gut feeling, quote mm-hmm. unquote gut feeling. I'll just call it gut feeling. It's I don't believe it's actually a gut feeling. It's actually a set of criteria that you have going in your head, a set of contingencies that, you, that you're doing automatically, subconsciously, and you call that a gut feeling, but it's actually right. completely in your control, right? Right. So I think that as we're, as we're able to start looking at that as the bigger picture, and then, so that idea of, because we said, what is natural environment? So we say, oh, at the table is, you know, DTT, typically, mm-hmm. stereotypically, and then away from that is natural environment. Well, if I'm doing worksheets about math, sitting on the floor, doing it with crayons and toys is actually way more unusual than sitting at a table with the rest of the class doing it. That is the natural environment. Or doing it on the floor with uh, counting beads or these giant foam letters. That's actually not the natural environment. We need to get you. I may have done that for you, Mm -hmm. but I have to get you away from that. I have to get you to a table to do it. So this idea of what is the natural environment becomes so arbitrary technically um, and gets it's just us who get so rigid in it. So I'm like, we can get away from that and go, where do I need you to do this again for generalization? If generalization is my goal, where do I need you to do this all on your own? That's what we need to aim for. And I go, and then what? give me a reason why I can't get you to do it there. My experience says it's because people who already do it there don't have the vocabulary to explain it to, explain it to other people. And those who aren't already doing it there don't have necessarily that, that flexibility because they're frequently so program-driven to engage there in a way that's going to continue to be naturalistic. It's going to, it's right. structures that were typically taught, the rudimentary structures of, of behavior analysis make us be rigid and make even the most natural settings be very unnatural. 
And, and it is, that's what I want to things I, I try to coach on and try to teach people through. Uh huh. No, that's a good thought. I like that because I mean, I think that's why I, I like this. I feel like sometimes I have an identity crisis. I, and you know, like sometimes <laughs> I've met some other SLP BCBAs that say, I identify as a BCBA. And, you know, sometimes when I'm around just BCBAs, I feel like I'm not BCBA enough. I'm being dead serious mm-hmm. here. And mm-hmm. I've never said this before, but sometimes when I'm around speech therapists and oftentimes because I have a lot, I'm not like killing it on social media, but I'm on social media a lot, you know, Instagram and all those things. And I feel like other speech therapists look at me and think I'm too much of a BCBA. So I'm kind of like stuck in the middle, just me and my friends, you know, but it's hard. And it seems like you've come up with this really great way to kind of bring the two together. And I like the idea of you're just thinking about how can you put terms on those things so you can, you know, implement these strategies, but then you're also coaching others. And I love that idea too. And that's kind of how I operate is, okay, if I'm working with students in middle school and high school and we're working on vocational skills or we're working on labeling or one-step directions because the students have, you know, a severe disability, I want to make sure that those things are very, very functional and are going to be tied into what the student is going to be doing. So we go down to the... One of the best things I ever did, and I I can't remember if I shared on the podcast, but we had a little library. Have you ever seen one of those little libraries before? They're a community library. like They have them in neighborhoods. And anyway, we had one in our high school. And so... I had a student and he would follow the direction to go ahead and get a book. So we would put one of his books in the little library that was down the hall. So we would walk together. He would open the door. He would get his book. We would go back to the classroom. We would read it together. He was working on some verbal imitation. It was like very all together, this whole like speech therapy session. I loved how functional it was. And it was just like, I always think too, like what is anybody else doing in this situation? Like other kids are going by and they're getting a book, they're taking it to class, they're looking at it. And you know, how can I set up those type of events for my students? So I'm always thinking that way too. I love that your brain is thinking in that really functional way. That's really great. So any tips and strategies that people could, if they are thinking to themselves like, ooh, you know, when he said things are really rigid, I think that was me, you know, like this is what I say when I say it. Or, you know, somebody might be listening and saying like, well, gosh, my sessions are really free flow. Do you have any like strategies if we wanted to incorporate this more into our practice from whatever angle we're doing it at. So I would absolutely say that. So I guess, so we'll, we'll do some top up and some or some top down and some bottom up. So if you are someone who has a lot of sessions that are more rigid, that are have are very planned, right? And and there's reasons for that. There, there so frequently are. You know, the best thing in order to give more flexibility is to help um, help your staff or yourself have a better idea of what is expected and and what is for that age, right? And one of the biggest things I can say is there's always, a, for lack of a better word, a trump card. There should always be something that supersedes your rules because that's the way real life works, right? If my kid is usually walking around, he points, neurotypical, whatever, just kid says he's walking around, he points to the thing he wants and the first, and he, you know, he's, you know, and he, I usually, all right, give it to him. That's what he wants. But the first time if he's screaming and crying and whatever else, and he's, cause he wants something. And I'm like, what do you want? And the first time he says, Baba, the, even though he was screaming and crying, he said something that was above and beyond what I've expected from him or what I've ever seen him do. And that should still win. 
that should mm-hmm. still trump whatever rules we had in place. So if we can, again, from the social bottom-up sorts going, this is what we're expecting from him, uh, one-word utterances or, you know, uh, two-word utterances, and he only does it when highly motivated, they're not, they're never comments, then give it an idea, like, this is what they are. If they do anything next level above that, that should win out, right? right. So that should help us become a little more flexible. So we need to give our our staff or our, our therapist or ourselves as parents this exception to the rule. I don't have to always follow the rule and just do it on purpose as opposed to accidentally in the moment be like, oh, well, I did it or I didn't do it. I don't, I'm not real great about that. I need to, mm-hmm. I like, I coach my parents to go, this, this, this is the exception. This is mm-hmm. when you can be more flexible because right. they need the structure, but they also need to know that they, they can succeed or being doing things new and different is better. Sometimes just doing something different than what you've done before, even if it's not right. Hey, he actually tried to say a word instead of just pointing or screaming or doing something and doing something he's done before. Reward that. That needs to be your 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 trump card in that range for it. Mm-hmm. From the top down approach, if you are someone who's who is really flexible with things and that, which is great and fantastic, right? I would generally push that person to try to help others understand what you're doing. And again, that's a lot of times this comes in the vocabulary. Really spend some time sitting and thinking. Just pick one skill, one thing you're trying to teach. Maybe a lot of kids, if you're a therapist or mm-hmm. or whatever, that you're. That what's the one thing that I can better explain people how I make that decision or why did I make that decision when I did it or when I didn't do it? And really being able to articulate that better to people in general. And then overall, I would say no matter what direction you're coming from, top down, bottom up, whatever it happens to be. Push yourself and challenge yourself. And again, there's not a lot of great training out there on how to do it. I do presentations and I do try to help with that. But as of yet, I don't have a a book or anything (laughs) out there for people. But push yourself to think of how can I tell the parent to do this? If you're a professional, if you're a parent going, what do I need from my professionals Mm -hmm. to do this every day? You know, uh, routine-based intervention, RBI, is a great overall framework. And and especially to pushing people to to think about that and incorporate that into routines. And I will definitely say a hands down every single time I get so tired of any professional who says, well, you need five minutes a day or 10 minutes a day to do this. I'm sorry, I don't have a child or a child with special needs and I don't have five to 10 minutes a day. Right. My poor dog is not <laughs> necessarily right. getting all the time that she needs. But whenever we we make a point to put it into a routine, something that is already being done, and that is a, a skill that as a professional, you have to develop. Right. But also as a parent, you learn to ask for, put, encourage your 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 people to to do that for you and provide that for you, that you can make such a huge difference not only in general of being able to build in natural environment teaching because you've built it into a routine that's already occurring. And if you're targeting something that they need to be doing anyway, that's and you're targeting at the level of when do I do it in my natural world, you should have plenty of opportunities. Right. Because if there aren't plenty of opportunities, you may have prioritized the wrong thing. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's so. a good that's a good point. Yeah, no, I love that idea of kind of analyzing these things can be embedded. And I know just with my own kids, like, oh, we need to read because I get all these. You need to read 20 minutes a day. They need to do this. Mm-hmm. They need to do that. So here I am analyzing and I have a book bin for my kids and I try to make it as easy as possible. Where do I keep the nighttime books? We keep them right, you know, on their nightstand. So it's right there. We can't keep it somewhere else in the house. That's a barrier to us getting it done, right? It has to be embedded. And 
I think as a parent, like thinking of that thing, like how, what are we working on? What are we trying to incorporate? How can we just make that part of our day? You know, even driving in the car with your kids, like there's a lot of time. I don't let my own kids have any kind of technology in the car. Like I just want to talk to my kids during that time. So I think just those ideas of this is your day. These are opportunities are already kind of embedded there. We just kind of have to think that through. Those are really great ideas. Oh my gosh, such a great conversation. I love all these tips and strategies. Really, really great. So I always end with the same question. I'd love to hear your answer here. So what is the most important piece of advice that you would want to pass along to parents or professionals about supporting learners with autism? The most important one I would have is, which is a hard question, my goodness, (laughs) right? What What a question would be about selecting the most relevant target and relevant goal objective for that individual. And also don't make that the hill you die on. (laughs) (laughs) So I tell I, I, in my personal coaching with parents and with professionals, I'm like, these are the things I have identified they need to learn because they it's important to them like there's right. a motivation for it and that's why they need to learn it mm-hmm. right or because i know if they did this it would allow them get to get to something that they have a motivation for right that's why they truly need to mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean i don't get to dictate that now is the time they need to learn that Mm-hmm. This, in this exact moment. So so definitely you be able to be flexible in, in that regard. It's hard to do when you have insurance or you have IEPs yeah. and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But be able to, to make sure that you have you have an idea of what they need and make sure it's always being tied back to what are, what are their motivations right now. Their mo- neurotypical kids, any kid, what they love on Tuesday, they hate it on Friday, right? <laughs> I've right. seen that enough times. Mm-hmm. So what we have to be careful of is that we... We're targeting something so specifically or get so enmeshed in that thing that Mm -hmm. it might not actually be lining up for them. So definitely, definitely keep that in mind. Yeah, love that. So great. So thank you so much for joining us today. Where can people find you if anybody wants to connect with you after the podcast? So you can find me at my website, innovativetherapysolutions.net or on Facebook at Innovative Therapy Solutions. Those are my two best. I am not the best at social media. Oh my gosh, good for you. You have a lot. You're doing other things with your time. Not me on TikTok, Instagram Reels. Oh man. Okay. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Braxton. Make sure to check the show notes for resources we discussed. I hope that you guys enjoyed the show. And if you haven't done so already, make sure to hit subscribe and write a review. Remember to keep things fun and functional. And I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Autism Outreach. If you enjoyed the show today, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode full of actionable strategies you can use in your therapy room. Write a review too. That would mean so much to me. I always love hearing from you. Have a specific topic that you want included on a future show? Reach out over on Instagram, ABA Speech by Rose, or visit me at www.abaspeech.org.